Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we sit down to read One Dimensional Man by Herbert Marcuse. Marcuse's life himself because I think that's kind of interesting he's one of the only people he worked for the OSS which Ho Chi Minh actually worked for which was set up during World War II to basically work as an intelligence agency for the United States and the other allied powers and so the operations for security service operational security services yeah, became the CIA, and they hired um, Marcuse, they hired um, Paul Sweezy, they hired uh, another Frankfurt School guy, Paul Neumann, to basically do sociological research for the anti-fascist uh, crusade or whatever. So um, it's actually kind of funny. It's like, you know, one of the examples of how, by collaborating with the U.S. government in World War II, Reds were kind of able to sneak into the establishment. You know, it's hard to blame... Like, a sp- all right, imagine you're Frankfurt School, you're fleeing the fascists, you know what I mean? I, I yeah, get it. I mean, I, can, I can't blame them either. Just like I can't blame Ho Chi Minh for doing a similar thing. You know, because it's just, you know, the Frankfurt School were suffering, you know, they were fleeing from pogroms, basically. You know, they were fleeing, they went, they came to them, there were a few... You know, Jews that were able to escape, actually. You know, a lot of Jews weren't able to escape the pogrom that happened. And they were specifically trying to fight fascism, so... Yeah, they, you know, I think one of the... They had this idea that they never wanted something like Auschwitz to ever happen again. Which I can, you know, sympathize with. Like, that's, you know... That, that, like, I think is the minimum moralia that Odona proposes for... Instead of there being, like, a positive definition of morality, there's... We'll just have this negative maxim. Never let this happen again. And when I was growing up, that was actually my reading of going to Hebrew school. And but I, I realized how racist some of the the people there were. Well, because um, <laughs> you know the the way of it, the state of Israel kind of you know whenever whenever the state of Israel is protested or attacked, they always bring up the specter of the Holocaust as like this is what's inevitably going to happen. Freddie Perlman has a really yeah. chilling quote where you know the thought would be that you know the lesson of genocide would be never again but frequently i mean he doesn't say frequently he says but so much more likely is it that the specter of a previous genocide the memory of a previous genocide will be the justification for new ones which is yeah exactly like i think i think it's unacceptable for to forget about genocides but you know in the jewish case especially it's 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 very haunting and this is freddie perlman is. is a man that's not like He's not talking out of his ass. He's not some edgy well, black guy. He, too, he escaped. Sure. His family escaped, like yeah. the Nazis. Yeah, so. like it's 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 one of those things where I can kind of emphasize with both sides in that sense. Where you know I understand never wanting something like Auschwitz to happen again and having that be a moral maxim, but at the same time, 
I, I can see how that can be used to justify, you know, crimes in a similar vein to Auschwitz, basically. And how it's always a feeling, you know, have, you know, if you notice whenever you have feelings of racial violence and ethnic cleansing, there's always this idea that persecution that people are reacting to, even if you have, a, it's a false persecution, like this whole idea that Europe is being like, you know, persecuted by the Muslims, you know, or that whites in America are persecuted by blacks through anti-white racism. And there's always this false sense of persecution, or even a correct sense of persecution that often is behind. And maybe, you know, it's, it's, you know, how correct that sense of persecution is impacts how progressive a reaction or someone's reaction to that oppression can be. But, uh, anyway, back to Marcuse, he also had a run-in with Ronald Reagan, which I find funny. Yeah, well, he was a professor in, uh, I think, Berkeley, I think it was. It was in one of those radical campuses, and it was when Ronald Reagan was governor of California. Marcuse had a big following of students and was involved in a lot of the student protests against the Vietnam War. Like He was the Frankfurt School guy that didn't dip out of political action, unlike all the other ones, and that's why it's kind of hard to not have respect for him, even if you kind of are like, God, oh, the Frankfurt School are snobs. But like, Marcuse is kind of the exception to the rule. Didn't he, al- didn't he also end up, like, dipping out eventually, like, later on in his career, like, a bit later? Like, he thought he was too optimistic. I can't remember if he did or not. Uh, I'm not sure. I think, yeah, I'd have to read his later work, because I've only read... Eros and Civilization, One Dimensional Man, and then an essay on liberation. And then there's the one about, um, what's it called, repressive tolerance. Right, I, I only read, like, um, uh, Reason and Revolution, which he wrote. Yeah, um, that looks good, actually. Yeah, Reason and Revolution and, and One Dimensional Man. Yeah, I actually was looking through the archives of the New Left Review because I wanted to see what they had to say when this book came out. And I found an article by R.D. Lang, who's one of the prominent uh, thinkers of anti-psychiatry and critics of the family. I thought he did an interesting job uh, summarizing the thesis of this book. So I thought I'd start out with that. Thesis of Herbert Marcuse's book, One Dimensional Man, is as follows. When dialectical rationality was first brought to bear on the historical process in the early 19th century, it was clear to anyone who was prepared to look at the facts that there existed an identifiable body of people, the proletariat, who were the living refutation of the capitalist system, and that though they made the goods and that produced the wealth, they themselves neither owned the goods nor acquired the wealth. Indeed, it seemed that the more they produced, the lesser was for them, and contradiction of society were glaring. The testimony to its untruth was concretely lived in the hunger and misery of the vast percentage of its members. Equality, justice, truth, love were lies and could be seen to be lies. Nevertheless, even such obvious negations of the system can become evident only to a consciousness which is not itself immersed with the mystifications of the system. If it contained the consciousness... The system itself, 
must appear as positive, pure, and simple. And so, basically, to summarize that, there once was this thing called the proletariat that was in the negation of this society that was, you know, based on these contradictions, but now it's no longer the negation, and that's because it doesn't have the consciousness to see beyond the mystifications of the system. Is that a, is that a thing? You think that's like a fair reading of Marcuse's general argument? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, I was having a conversation with someone earlier about Marcuse and about whether he's proposing a totalizing critique. And um, there's a certain sense in which he's not, in the sense that, you know, liberal totalitarianism is like, uh, I don't know, sort of monolithic. Like, what he's presenting is a situation where this monolith is actually rationally defended by free society because it becomes more ec like economically and otherwise technologically rational to submit rather than to try to get more freedom. I think he says somewhere that the use value of freedom is diminished. <laughs> so um, Yeah, he talks a lot about operational logic as opposed to negative mm. logic. And I think that's a big part yeah. of his argument is that humans are becoming more and more prone to this operational logic, which is basically just adapting to what the system needs. And the thing is, is what's rational is seen as what an irrational system, you know, requires. And so essentially, irrationality is rational, but because people can't think dialectically, they can't see this contradiction. I mean, yeah. You know, my question about all this, though, is like, on some level, isn't he just kind of talking about the way that people adapt to existing in class society? I mean, I guess like previous like class societies had like different forms of mediation and like different forms of repression, but I mean, this it just this just sounds like uh, you know a superstructure with maybe a different set of um, I don't know ideological structures um that are you know a result of a different material base but like when was this golden era where everyone was thinking dialectically and fucking uh you know thinking in this way that was like beyond reaction or what you know you know what i'm saying like it was three months in russia in 1917 <laughs> <laughs> more or less and yeah like a heyday of you know some intellectual circles that you know, we're setting up shop in Weimar and then fled the Holocaust and Well, there was yada, a yada. day of the workers moving. This reminds, and this really reminds me of EndNotes with their whole argument that, you know, I, I, I think I said this a long time ago, that I really don't actually see the difference between the EndNotes critique and the Marcuse critique other than how they come to their conclusions. Because EndNotes comes through a kind of structuralist Marxist value form critique and where Marcuse is coming from a Hegelian humanist critique. But I also sense the influence of Heidegger and Nietzsche in this. Well he's coming in he's coming in at, at like, you know, the end of modernity basically. And like that's what's going away. And it's sort you know, there's even a there's even a part where he tell, he like laments like he talks about the way that characters were like in like late 19th century, early 20th century literature and the kind of that part's fun. Yeah. Modes of being and so on and so forth. Well, yeah, that's like, 
Yeah, he's basically this is like the birth of like the postmodern era or whatever, and so I I don't think he totally understands like that that's what's happening. Yes, exactly. Is that's what's happening is there's this very specific period of history called the post-war era in the core countries from 1945 and 1975. Thirty years of capitalism that so many people try to think of as the normal you know, perfectly functioning model of capitalism. People call it Fordism or whatever. And this is what Marcuse is reflecting against and, and reacting against is this kind of highly administered, highly technocratic form of Fordist capitalism that's designed on a very regimented, oppressive way of life. Everyone lives in a, in a house and, for, you know, a wife who does all the domestic labor of a breadwinner. And there's, you know, you know, the whole idea of the suburbs incorporating the working class into the propertied classes. And he's, he's responding to a very specific period in history where the working class in the United States was largely made into a labor aristocracy, particularly the white male mm. working class. So I want to push back a little bit on that he thinks that this is normal. There's a, a passage that really sticks out in my mind on, on my copy, it's page 56, I don't know. Um, it's uh, the image of the welfare state sketched in the preceding paragraphs is that of a historical freak between organized capitalism and socialism, servitude and freedom, totalitarianism and happiness. Um, it's, it's possibility sufficiently indicated by prevalent tendencies of technological progress and sufficiently threatened by explosive forces. So I don't think that he necessarily believes that this is a stable situation. And to the extent that there is a, uh, I, I thought your uh, parallel between the sort of uh, Hegelian, Hegelian mode of argument that this is doing and EndNote's like structuralist path to similar conclusions is really, um, I thought that was a good parallel. And the, I think the major difference between the two is that in EndNote's or, you know, whatever the communization terms, that they're dealing with different phases of real subsumption, um, that there's one that has a tendency towards like, concentration and another that has a tendency towards diffusion and i think although Mar marcuse is talking about the tendency of diffusion and the false pluralism that kind of stuff i think when you look back at the golden age of capitalism quote unquote it's obvious that you know the logics of disintegration go far further than um than well, marcuse was, was going to be able to see well my point is that you know marcuse he sees this statization and this kind of fordist mode of capitalism in the Soviet Union as both two types of industrial society that are almost converging, right? I mean, that's kind of the... <clears throat> yeah, And yeah, you could say totally. it's not a stable situation because of the whole situation of nuclear arms, but at the but same that's time, the thing, that's the he thing does that he kind of see stable. this... He does, he, did, he does kind of imagine the two societies basically converging in the end. And he yeah. does see Soviet society and capitalist society as basically just two different versions of an industrial or oppressive society yeah right. i didn't um what i'm forgetting his name didn't the like uh the inventor of like bureaucratic collectivism as a theoretical concept also believe max that Schachman? yeah rex uh shatman max, yeah max shatman max shatman he's not the inventor but he's the popularizer inventors uh james burnham i think bruno rizzi this weird Italian guy was the originator. 
But anyway, Max Schachtman was like, yeah, he's the guy who really brought it to popularity. But I, what, I think the saying? important thing is that um, in this kind of stage of capitalism or industrial society or uh, technological <laughs> civilization, like you end up with a, um, a, situ a situation of a sort of encoding of the enemy as being an ever-present threat and being the thing that always justifies, uh, you know, basically getting rid of a bunch of freedoms. And people are more or less, you could say bought off, but he really gives them the dignity of being economically rational. Well, yeah, he and says they're just that, acting that the in thing. the ways that are, the, the problem is, is that people act rationally according to our society. And the thing is, is that we, because we live in a, in a fundamentally irrational society, you know, people can't see this contradiction. And so the, the possibility, that kind of gap between what is and what ought to be doesn't exist in people's minds. I think, too, one of the things about instrumental reason is that it has to do with the lack of social planning, because for all of his dismissal of a lot of traditional Marxist terminology, Marcuse supports production to meet human needs and things of that nature. And uh, I think in instrumental reason, in industrial societies, atomized people perform uncoordinated rationality that becomes irrational because even your own self-interests change when you when you look at, at a group, when you look at potentialities that, that you gain from being a member of a group, things like that. I wonder, so, could somebody break down the concept of, like, instrumental rationality? Like, sure. What does that mean exactly? Instrumental rationality, um, the phrase comes from this, like, typology of different sorts of reason by the German sociologist Max Weber that was incorporated into... I think what must be the big influence on this work, which is Adorno and Horkheimer's Dialectic of Enlightenment. And in that work, they make the argument that basically instrumental reason, which is a reason that it's very similar to if you ever take a formal logic class, like you will be judged on not like, you know, is this conclusion worth reaching? But how thoroughly do we reach? How, how can we thoroughly reach this conclusion? And so you come to a situation where this form of reason um, is, is sometimes called the rationality of means. We can't judge rationally, you know, conclusions. That's not the point. The point is to get to the conclusions. It doesn't matter what your conclusion is. That's not what reason is for. Reason can't criticize the ends. Reason gets you somewhere. So if your goal is to eliminate the Jews... So if your goal is to eliminate the Jews, you call IBM, you get high-tech computers, you know, you do it really rigorously, but you don't get to choose, like, rationally deliberate. Like right, but, so that, but that's just like an – so right, so that's, that's like an – is that like instrumental reason's fault, though? Isn't that like an epiphenomenon of, like, social relations where – Yeah. The, the, the reason the – The people who, you know, handle this kind of knowledge don't have the – social or political means to challenge you know the system itself that employs yeah. them right but the uh but the the tragedy to them is that the dominance of instrumental reason the subsumption of everything like prevents whatever conscious element would be necessary for 
revolution. Is, because is that because is it, that instru- is that instrumental reason's fault though, or is that capital's fault? That's what I always say when I talk about instrumental reason, is that what it seems to be describing to me is the way that reason becomes distorted by capitalism and not a greater phenomena in and of itself that kind of exists beyond capitalism. I, th- I think it's a matter of political economy. If you reject that the Soviet Union and similar societies were capitalist, you have to reject that this is only a problem of capitalism and that this is a part of a broader process of technological society. And he even criticizes but technological like, rationality as such. But so I if mean, you're looking for the Heideggerian influence, there it is. I don't think that the issue of the Soviet Union was technological rationality. Like when I studied mm. the Soviet economy, what really comes across is that they aimed for technological rationality, but didn't actually achieve it, and they settled yeah. for less than what you know, than a real yeah, technological it's, it's rationality. Because they, it's because they refused. They adopt essentially a lot of the times they were looking for capitalist ends and refused to adopt capitalist means, like. They're trying to achieve the, the same kind of industrialization that historically only was happening with capitalism. I mean, like the thing with instrumental reason, it's sort of a specific kind of like utilitarian logic that you that like only makes sense under capitalism. I mean, like it, it's kind of like with game theory, you know, you have to work with like rational actors completely with rational actors who end up making these irrational conclusions because they're competi- because they're in competition that's fundamentally irrational. It, it, yeah, and I think the the whole cold war and that setup of the cold war and the whole game theory ideology, that's very much what's inspiring Marcuse in this. But I think the problem is, is that he's looking to ideology too much as to the answers as to why the masses are so integrated into capitalism. But in the in a sense, it's just he writes I think his actual argument is really weak when I read it a second time. But I just find it a really compelling and fascinating book to read, but I appreciate it anyway. I guess I'm I'm thinking about like this instrumental reason in light of, you know, the the global warming problem, right? Where pretty much all of all of the climate scientists, all of their conclusions basically point to, you know, capitalism is the problem, and their work basically pretty much says that all but explicitly, right? But they know they explicitly can't say it because they don't really have the political capital to do so, or and they would lose the material base to operate as they do if they did, right? They so that, they might not even think political... of it that way, though. They they might not have the lens of thinking that it is capitalism they might think oh man greed is ruining the world that's a you know that is how but a lot of even scientists think I, I suppose so but if they were being like truly rational wouldn't they kind of arrive at that ultimate conclusion i mean well it depends on whether your your rationality is deployed to make yourself comfortable or whether it's a truth-seeking rationality mm. right that's the problem of instrumental reason so this is the problem, though, is he says that humans, you know, are distorted by this instrumental reason from their truth-seeking reason. And so that since they have these false needs that are created by consumerism. But that ends up creating this idea that there's authentic human needs that we're being kind of blinded from by 
the social relations that are, you know, mystifying our reality. And so in a way, there is this kind of notion that there is a human, there is an essential authentic human in Marcuse that's being distorted by all of these, by this technological, you know, operationalism. Well, I think I think he's trying to like criticize like consumer culture, right? Where you know, yeah, oh, you always oh, gotta yeah. get, look at all these sheeple lining up for the new iPhone, man, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. It's yeah, oh yeah, like I was gonna say that at another point, but this is basically like a really theoretically advanced way of saying, "Wake up, sheeple." <laughs> I mean, and the thing is, like, I mean, it, like the super structural questions, and that, that's kind of like you know, his area of study, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, it's not necessarily like his job maybe to have like a material criticism of capitalist society, but you know, sometimes like it's, you know, it's the problem of like cultural criticism, how you can only get so far just analyzing this, you know, the superstructure and analyzing well, like, you know, well, he on. does I, analyze I, I, the base. He, kind he does. Of. Well, technological yeah, rationality he, is, yeah. is the, you should do it. Like on <laughs> on an individual like game theory level, and this is something I think about a lot. Like, yeah, like wh what you know, absent other people cooperating, acting yourself, what is in your best interest to try to overthrow the bourgeois state or to try to get on health insurance? Right. Well, I mean, what would you? I mean, absent like any kind of collectivity, what would overthrowing the bourgeois state even look like as an individual? Like, it's not even a question. Yeah, I mean, you know. But the thing is, I, mean, is I, I, um, I guess you could, I guess you could go full Teddy K or Mega Bomber. It's interesting, yeah. though. You know, on, you on can one person can make a change in the world, Jake. You know, yeah. one person can. Oh God, one person, yeah, just get their manifesto read out loud. And anyway, what yeah, I was I, gonna say was, uh, if if I had my camera on for the live stream, you'd see all like all my wall is just covered in Heath Ledger Joker pictures. <laughs> No, but okay, what's funny sorry. is Marcuse is basically for fully automated luxury communism. I yeah. actually think he has an odd feeling about the Soviet Union's desire to raise the productive forces. That's that's me picking at the word luxury in a way. Um, well, the way I saw it was he thinks the Soviet Union is mimicking capitalism too much, basically. And it's how it looks at luxury. And he thinks that there's this massive... He, he notices the contradiction between the forces of production and the relations of production. And he sees how this contradiction continues to exist. And so capitalism gets more decadent and irrational and administrated, basically. But the proletariat gets more integrated in. So the actual negation within society, the actual conflict within society, that can drive this contradiction between the relations of production and the production productive forces doesn't exist right i mean it seems like we were saying before an eternalization of the social piece of of the period to to say that the proletariat is straight up gone or what have you and we can i'm not sure how much marcuse would agree with us that he's saying the proletariat is gone, but he does seem to emphasize this idea of a new subject, which is this eclectic coalition of oppressed, latently progressive forces, rather. Yeah, and it's I mean, really... Th that would kind of be the operational theory of the new left, I mean... That, yeah, know, this is this is the theory of the new left. This guy was who everyone in the new left was talking about. The whole idea of 
basically the way you would do politics is having a coalition of different oppressed groups comes from Marcuse because it comes from student activists who, first of all, they're already alienated from the working class. And so this whole theory that really it's the outsiders in general, this vague notion of, it kind of reminds me of Dugan, actually, the way he sees everything outside totalitarian neoliberalism as like the negation of it and should be supported. And so Marcuse, like, Marcuse sees, like, the subject as basically the neg negative consciousness, which can only exist in, like, the abjected corners of society. Right, and I don't think Marcuse acknowledges what the role of the proletariat in Marxism really was if he's willing to replace it so quickly uh, in favor of these identity categories, because the proletariat is a universal class with this kind of special relationship uh, that the identity oppressions don't have to each other in isolation, you know, the liberation of any segment of the proletariat being dependent on the liberation of all segments. So. Yeah. That's the thing is that class is what allows you to have a political access through which you can unite all these different identity groups that are abjected from capitalism. It's but class in, in, in the post-war order you... in the post-war order, like the, you know, long-term like, class rationality of international solidarity and you know banding together even your whole national proletariat was just like i we, we don't have to look to the new left for this like uh when we read uh automation in the what's it called the american revolution by uh, james boggs you know he makes a very similar argument he's like are you kidding me do you think you really think that you know like empirically speaking you know the condition of the american proletariat during the golden age when they were like, you know, a lot of them were submitting to McCarthyism and oh, yeah, totally. segregation totally. and you know, like being bought off on, on a family wage. And in, instead of having a universal welfare state, they did redlining and like, you know, had extremely racist like lending programs for not productive property. OK, maybe necessarily, but it, I, everyone was getting their, you know, all the, all the people I included in, were you know, getting their like their right. But I don't even think laborists like. Okay, but they have is, they have a house, yeah. right? But that's not their labor relationship necessarily. This is the thing, though. Like, that whole social contract that you're describing is being broken down, and now. it's in decay now. Now, but back in the that's time, the major was, difference. Yeah, that's the thing. In this time, the working class actually is integrated into the state in a way that eliminates the class contradiction. And you saw this in May '68, where three you know 30 million workers went on strike under the leadership of the only party that was in opposition to gaulism and ended up you know just agreeing to some structural reforms and the working class it was within the rational interests of the working class to simply go on strike for demands and not go on strike for revolution it was not in its rational interests to you know, make revolution because of, according to the operational logic of the labor movement. And so Marcuse, I can see the appeal of this in the 1960s, basically. And I think when you look at like the hard hats beating up Vietnam protesters, and then this guy has this really sophisticated like analysis. But I think this, this is, I'm kind of ranting, but and I think the thing is, is that you had a hegemonic 
worker identity. This is where I agree with EndNotes. That kind of developed out of the new left. And I think it was a distortion of the real idea of the proletariat. But what happened was you had, you know, these sections of the proletariat that were left out. And that weren't even considered part of the proletariat because, you know, they were unemployed, because they were women, because they were, you know, people of color, because they worked in informal sections of the economy. So you had all of these different groups that were left out of all the benefits of the post-war compromise. And so it makes sense that if you wanted to build a movement of the proletariat even at this time, you would go towards those sections that are in the, not integrated into... Because I think the idea is that the whole proletariat is integrated into capitalist class is wrong if we take a more expanded understanding of the proletariat. Right, but, but finish the sentence that what was integrated into the class identity. and the oh, whole It was integrated behind, into right? the state through a class identity that was right. formed right. by the labor arist aristocracy's and, bureaucracy. And you have a bunch of people in that class that are sort of refused to be recognized by workerism, but are, objectively speaking, part of the class, and objectively speaking, have like a, you know, probably a sense of resentment about not getting this, the sweet position in the middle uh, that obviously ended up panning out like throughout the, you know, the 60s, like in 70s. Well, yeah, I think this describes the material base for identity politics. Yeah. Like you really did have, and I think I think we've been perceptive in saying that like he makes an eternalization of this condition. He actually can't imagine it falling apart. That's what makes him so depressed. He sees a nineteen eighty four like continuity where you know we'll always be at war with Oceania because everything will always stand. There's no you know he he thinks that the contradictions are really smoothed out, which I do think has to do with maybe like. I don't think that he, he's thinking that he's turning away from political economy, and I don't think a lot of the Frankfurt School thinks that way. But um, some of them do, because I mean, a lot of them were really fucked I mean, up by fascism and trying to explain fascism as a pure phenomenon of capitalism. Doesn't he argue in, like, a part of, like, last, like, when I was in high school, I remember going through this, and, like, I remember, like, sort of, like, having a moment where I needed to stop because he was, like, trying to argue that the labor theory of value doesn't even make sense, like, at one point in the book, but... I... Does anyone remember where that is? Well, I, I remember him quoting an extensive passage of the Grundrisse where... And it's I think it's part of the fragment on machines where Marx oh, talks oh, about... Oh, God, they'll get me started on that. Well, I, I think it's pretty interesting. Like, I think it's an interesting thing that, like... There's at some point like this process where like exchange value starts to break down because of automation that I don't know. That seems plausible to me based on based on the theory level of ever like a really high level of automation. Yes. Right. Right. Based on the theory, that's plausible to me. But the, the thing that they're both drawing out, Marx and Marcuse, is how in terms of social relations, that process. And this is something that a lot of the Marxist humanists often don't take into account but how disempowering that automation process is politically and um that is something of course the structuralists have on the humanists well to go back to this idea of like the eternalization of like the 50s or whatever like in a sense though 
like that period was kind of eternalized because it still structures so much of like how we think about class and politics yeah. in this country, <clears throat> right? The like, post-war order. Yeah, because you know it's something that you know even both like Sanders and Trump will basically appeal to for different reasons, and you know it's kind of embodied in the Eisenhower administration, which was like the birth of at once the birth of the religious right and this concept of like America as a nation, quote unquote, under God but also like an expansion of the welfare state, right? And that, so, you know, it's sort of a thing that, you know, different people from different perspectives read different things into it. And, you know, it's it's looked back, you know, as like this, it's looked back on nostalgia from both the right and the left uh, for different reasons. But I think that, you know, now class consciousness has become, has become so confused in this country that co- what constitutes part of the working class almost comes down to like arbitrary cultural signifiers more than it does any real economic position. You know what I mean? Well, that's, so that's the like, danger of, uh, of having this symbolic identity to play with. And especially once it gets out of the hands of a radical workers movement, you know, it becomes, it too becomes uh, a way of reinforcing the status quo. Right. But I mean, that almost could be like, in a, like this could be, you know, the, the sort of the nightmare world like spawn of you know the order that Marcuse is describing where automation kind of like shifts the basis of society but you know people are still stuck trying to basically like recreate like this kind of golden age of technical rationality and american greatness or whatever even though the material base for it is gone so you basically have people clinging to like these different like you know again different like cultural signifiers you know you see like those memes where it's like if you want 15 an hour for flipping burgers, my I wake up with my dick harder than your job. Or people who, all, like white people who drive pickup trucks is like status symbols, basically. Where like the back of the truck is so small, they couldn't fit anything in there anyway, but it's a pickup, you know. Or, you know, it, or there's, there's just this general like psychosis that you see like in American politics right now. Like it, it's, it's, um, it is kind of this, it's this it's this uh, eternal purgatory, maybe, <laughs> that well, we're sort it, of stuck in from the 1950s. Yeah, it doesn't seem like that this book is specifically written about America, literally, but in my heart, it, it is specifically written about America. I know it's not, but it just feels oh, so it's, right. It's, and it's, it, it's because that well, one I mean, dimension he that he's talking about is the American political spectrum. I mean, there's yeah, really he's, just he's, <laughs> this is a slider. So, so dead it's on one for slider. America. That's it. There's no two. It's not you like you know those political compasses with two axes, you know that would be two D. No, this is one D. Yeah, that's all we but, get. But it does one D to rule them all. It does speak to to Germany as well and what was going on in Germany. And I think that it kind of is he is intentionally talking about the core countries because he does see a possibility for something different in the third world. Because it hasn't gone fully through capitalist development yet. So therefore, there is a potential for something outside the one dimension that can change things. But at the same time, he's not totally clear on how, you know, he's, he's not totally clear on whether, you know, the, the revolution really is going to happen in the third world or not. It just kind of suggests that that might be one of the, you know, sources of this kind of great refusal of outsiders i want to go touch on another reason that he rejects the uh 
the proletarian label or at very least shies away from it because there's another reason this is a a revolution of outsiders rather than the revolutionary proletariat and um i don't like his critique of the ussr that much i think it's a little abstract um that marxism itself can offer us the foundations of soviet society by looking at through that perspective of classes and modes of productions i i find this kind of culturalist or what have you but i i do think there's a quote i want to highlight this is page uh 105 in my copy the productive growth of the established communist society also condemns the libertarian communist opposition the language which tries to recall and preserve the original truth succumbs to its ritualization the orientation of discourse and action on terms such as the proletariat workers councils the dictatorship of the stalinist apparatus becomes orientation on ritual formulas where the quote-unquote proletariat no longer or not yet exists where direct control quote-unquote from below would interfere with the progress of mass production and where the fight against the bureaucracy would weaken the efficiency of the only real forces that can be mobilized against capitalism on an international scale here the past is rigidly retained but not mediated with the present one opposes the concepts which comprehended a historical situation without developing them into the present situation. One blocks their dialectic. And I, I think there's a certain wisdom to what he's saying here, not one that... Yeah, is, uh, when, I was, when I was... When I first... I just want to say real quick, when I first read this book, I was more of an anarchist, and like that quote really spoke to me and influenced my... That was one of the parts of this book that I could actually comprehend back then. Right, his and he's that's really spoke really to me. There's something to it, and his point seems to be that the very language with which the Marxist case is articulated against political economy can be convenient to justifying a system where the working class is completely not in command, um, and workers control in industry is a mere catchphrase where that whole control is is maintained by a broader situation of alien bureaucracy. Yeah. And, I think he's making us ask ourselves, though, why was Marxism used so thoroughly and so well by these developmentalist socialist yeah. states to justify the buildup of an industrial society? I think I that's because it's in Marx. Like, that that line of thinking can come from Marx, I think. And that's the, the truth we have to come to grips with, is that there is a reading of Marx that is a developmentalist economist and yeah, you have to go against a lot of his political project, but it is a reading of Marx. Well, I want to I wanna <clears throat> put forward that, and this is connected to that idea, that the peasantry is a huge part of this, that Marxism developed its analysis of capitalism as a totalizing world system before capitalism was quote-unquote finished. And so it grasps that, you know, in in Russia, in Africa, wherever we're faced with, in China, wherever we're faced with these peasant populations, a Marxist perspective grasps pretty much immediately that they're, you know, whether this means use them as a base, whether this means forced collectivization, that they are modally anachronistic, that they are not of this mode of production. And I think so if you're looking at at them from a mode of production standpoint, having a theoretical background that has already predicted modernity, right? Because cap 
communism, Marxist communism's analysis kind of rightly sees capitalism as this totalizing system that was going to overcome feudalism. So, so anyway, I, I think that that really... Oh, I totally get what you're saying there, because if you try to examine peasant cultures and peasant class stratifications using the mode of production, proletariat, bourgeois, you know, for like using those categories are just going to butcher the actual complexity of these societies because like you said there is this totalizing aspect to capitalism there's like the as the value form becomes more dominant worldwide it becomes more universalizing there's like a universalizing aspect of the value form yet at the same time i think you never do get to a point where you have pure total capitalism worldwide because I think that development of the state creates, you know, a whole sector of society that doesn't follow exactly the rules of capital accumulation. And that gets bigger as capitalism gets more intensive. And so there's, you know, it's always going to be more complex than the world depicted in Das Kapital. Yeah, I think whereas, whereas peasants were one of the key rational pillars of having a state for both the socialist revolutionaries and for the bourgeois state capitalists. Um, I think now today, one of the rationales that could be put forward for a state is the petty bourgeoisie. And so it seems almost like some of these lines of thought lead you away from Marxist analysis or lead you to question whether there is a proletariat and a bourgeoisie in these kind of coherent terms but i don't know i don't think marcuse actually does a fantastic job of convincing us that you know the left has failed to conquer capitalism for the reasons he says though i i really liked his critique of the soviet union that and his comments on like third world revolution and just the end of that political chapter more generally was the the stuff out of the little bit of the book that I read that grabbed me the most. I, I just want to say, you know, now that you're being more sympathetic, I did want to say that he doesn't something about his idea about workers power and the Soviets is really interesting because he he gives to the Soviet Union that there's some kind of workers control, quote unquote. But he also says that direct control from below would interfere with the progress of mass production and the fight against the bureaucracy would weaken, you know. But the point is, he he seems to believe that the workers' control, that the social planning in the Soviet Union is a bastardization of something we should actually do. Because if direct control from below is you know, bad from an instrumental perspective because it interferes with the progress of mass production. I think there's a counter to that implied. Going back a little bit, I wanted to read a passage on the argument from historical backwardness um, from page 43 of my edition, 2002. Um, the argument from historical backwardness, according to which liberation must, under the prevailing conditions of material and intellectual immaturity, necessarily be the work of force and administration is not only the core of Soviet Marxism, but also that of the theoreticians of, quote, educational dictatorships from Plato to Rousseau. It is easily ridiculed, but hard to refute, because it has the merit to acknowledge without much hypocrisy the conditions, material and intellectual, which serve to prevent genuine and intelligent self-determination. Moreover, the argument debunks the repressive ideology of freedom, according to which human liberty, 
can blossom forth in a life of toil, poverty, and stupidity. Indeed, society must first create the material prerequisites of freedom for all its members before it can be a free society. It must first create the wealth before being able to distribute it according to the freely developing needs of the individual. It must first enable its slaves to learn and see and think before they know what is going on and what they themselves can do to change it. And to the degree which the slaves have been preconditioned to exist as slaves and to be content, their liberation necessarily appears to come from without and from above. They must be, quote, forced to be free. They must, uh, to, quote, see the objects as they are and sometimes as they ought to appear. They must be shown, quote, the good road they are in search of. But with all truth, the argument cannot answer the time-honored question. Who educates the educators? And where is the proof that they are in possession of the good? Um, so he makes, like... He draws that right out of Marx. Like, that's, that's very, that's, this, it kind of, yeah, there's a bite to that. Like, so what you're saying I was going to say, that's before, kind of the, that's kind of the ultimate, like, okay, so you want to have a revolution. Well, think about this kind of argument. It's like, all right, so you want, what page was that on again? 41, you said? It's uh, 43 to 44 on the 2002 Routledge edition that was translated by somebody named... Um, I don't know. Why doesn't it tell me? <laughs> well, I think Can that uh, Marcuse says straight up at one point that he doesn't just want to put like you know the abundance created by capitalism... I was going to say, first of all, like the argument that you need material abundance before you can have freedom from necessity and have a free society, that is very hard to refute. But then the whole question is, so how do we actually escape from the you know, bureaucracy and the whole state system that is created as a result of that necessity? Once that necessity has been conquered, you know, how to, you know, that's, there's a real contradiction there. But I do think that Marcuse sees this as possible, and that he does, but he wants, he doesn't just want to seize the existing means of production, he actually thinks that within the structure of the mode of production and the forces of production, there is something wrong, and so there needs to be like a, there needs to be a transformation of the forces of production themselves at a technical level, so there can be a new society. And I think that he sees the problem with Soviet Marxism is that it doesn't understand this fundamental need to not just transform the property of relations, but to transform the actual forces of production, which is also, you know, like the tech, the labor process, the actual machinery, and all that stuff. Side note, translated by no one, because it was written in English. <laughs> I mean, that's just further proof this was for America. It feels like it. It feels at America. Yes. May I begin by qualifying a little what you said? Actually, my book does not deal uh, with the United States. It deals, uh, as the quotation shows, with uh, certain tendencies, not more, certain tendencies which I think are observable in the most advanced areas of industrial civilization. The most advanced area of industrial civilization, of course, is the United States today. But even in the United States, the tendencies to which I point are prevailing, if they are prevailing at all or not simply beginning uh, to uh, show themselves. 
only in certain advanced areas, meaning, as is well known, that there are still vast regions of underdevelopment, of poverty, even in the United States. Now yeah, but I, I think that his argument about the need to change technology is, is, is interesting, because I think there is some truth to that, that really get into like high-stage communism. There needs to be a revolution in the forces of production that's made possible by new relations of production. Well, think about energy and our, econo- our uh, ecological situation. That's the ultimate example of this. Capitalist rationality versus communist rationality. What would a, what would a real rational response to the environmental crisis look like? That's a communist question. That's, that's a question outside of the bounds of capitalist instrumental reason. Apparently, you know, I actually thought higher of them before I realized that this is where they're going to take us. Well, the thing is, Mike, you can argue that if the problem is not capitalist, it, you know, distortion of reason, but this broader category of instrumental reason that's greater than capitalism, you can kind of, you know, come to a primitivist conclusion if you think about it. Yeah, because it's, it's, if it's not the author's it's, conclusion, but it it's is It's not it a Marcuse's conclusion. But you could say, all right, you know, Marcuse basically thinks that we're going to have fully automated luxury space gay communism. Yeah. You know? Rick Roderick calls him the Norman Vincent Peale of, of his generation because yeah, he still he, believes he, that humanity has a happy fate. Marcuse is an old-fashioned guy from the 60s. He still thinks, and I, I have no way to defend him now. Too much has happened. Too many things have gone wrong. But Marcuse still thinks that human beings as a species have historically accumulated potential. Over history, they've accumulated a potential to live a life with a good deal more freedom and a good deal more happiness and solidarity than the one they live now. In fact, Marcuse, unlike philosophers, is an unashamed advocate for this project. Philosophers don't enjoy being advocates for any positions that matter, usually, but Marcuse is, in this case, an advocate for this position. Marcuse still tries to defend, uh, as I say, freedom, happiness, creativity. He still believes in the truth. He still believes the human race has a happy destiny. I mean, I think that we have to look back at Marcuse, who at the time we looked at as a vicious radical. I think we have to look back at him as a kind of Norman Vincent Peale of the 60s. I mean, Marcuse wasn't radical at all by the standards of this world into which we have slipped by the late 20th century. No, he really does sound like Norman Vincent Peale at times. It's, it's, uh, it's almost uh, quaint if it wasn't so horrifying. Because his meditation and his, I'm not meditation, his theory, his view is about the destiny of the human race on this planet, about whether we will ever learn to make sense or whether we'll just keep making money and madness. It's a real big question. He wants, he, he wants that kind of futuristic high-tech communism that we all fantasize about. But if you basically are already pessimistic towards technology, I can see reading Marcuse. And basically just being like, yeah, we need to just burn everything the fuck down and destroy this entire world because it's just utter shit. 
and we need to, you know, just abolish all mediations because they've taken our truly human needs and distorted us into these one-dimensional beings that are just completely we're, we're just NPCs. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. you can you can though? definitely you can definitely see the connection between arguments about domestication that are put forward by primos and like anti-civilization anarchists and uh, the one dimension what <laughs> um, and i'm, I'm kind of an accelerationist actually like that's the thing that acceleration is yeah this sure. is totally like kamad's concept of domestication that basically humans become more and more alienated and estranged from their true primal you know nature and this is a bad thing and we need to kind of go back and escape this domestication and it's and i think marcuse doesn't go that far but i can see reading like i said i can see reading a lot of the frankfurt school stuff with that conclusion and that's why it's not surprising that you know john zerzan references the frankfurt school constantly yeah yeah that makes sense to me it's this idea that basically all mediation is bad because it abstracts from the real and the concrete and we want this true concrete existence that isn't mediated and language itself is a mediation and so that's why you get the wacky concepts from Zerzan like abolishing language and stuff there's just almost Heideggerian <laughs> sense of abolishing all that's you know but at least uh, I, like I, abolishing everything that's not authentic and returning to like or, or achieving the authentic self without the distortions but hey you and know at least that's, Heidegger that's, appreciated like, like the sophistication of, of, a, of a weird language or something like this yeah. guy just wants to flatten the whole world and make it's us sort like, of a pre-primate. Sort of a weird contradiction that the entirety of um, the entirety of the Frankfurt School, uh, basically embraced a kind of high modernism in terms of like its art and like what it believed for like what they wanted in terms of society, but at the same time they have this like fundamental critique that seems to go against that, with. Re instrumental reason being at the heart of this horrific downward spiral of humanity maybe part of it is that they're not against this kind of technology as such though believing it needs to be transformed but instrumental reason is kind of any kind of society where like a cancer the production is just about things being produced in the most efficient way possible in this kind of endless way i'm not sure yeah, I think the useful way to read this book is that, and the Frankfurt School more generally, is that, like, okay, I don't want to say that the cultural revolution stuff that happens in, you know, like, uh, civil rights in May 68 and, and like, uh, you know, second wave feminism and, you know, queer liberation and, you know, I don't want to write that stuff off. But the truth is that, historically speaking, you know, the, the challenge to capitalism, like, that era had closed, essentially, as we know it, like, you know, with the death of the old left, or and it's, you know, and Stalinism, and that sort of thing. Like, that's really what happened. And so if you're a thinking Marxist at this time, and you watch fascism, you know, devour, like, you know, like, even smash, like, bourgeois, like, opinion of, of humanity, you know, like, um, you're, you're really watching the close of the possibility that capitalism isn't going to engulf the fucking world really like because socialism was going to be so 
freaking dumb. Like it just wasn't, you know, like, you know, it's, it was eventually either going to collapse or whatever, like, or, or transmit itself into capitalism. And really what we're looking at is that the productive forces demanded <laughs> a certain kind of monstrous society. And the accelerationist reading of this is that without this horrible thing happening, there was really no way to transcend it. And what, what they were, what he, what they were witnessing was the, the evaporation of a revolutionary hope at the time that we wouldn't need to go through this as, as a world that, you know, it, it, it didn't have to be that way. There could be an alternate path to development. And he even has hopes for, he, he has, he entertains the prospect that there could be another way towards industrialization that wouldn't be so, you know, like wouldn't harm like third world as much and wouldn't harm like indigenous customs as much. Like he entertains that as a possibility, but also says it's not bloody likely, like at the same time. Um, so that's what I think he really wants. He wants this technology to not be what it is and demand the kind of world that it does demand when it's being developed and that there is something really awful and anti-human about what what happens in capitalism and that what and and there and like i guess in retrospect that like the historical challenges didn't pan out being alive at that time must have been suffocating like you know like um, well i think on some level too he's, he's responding to um what a lot of thinkers you know marxists and non in this period we're responding to which is the rise of this new form of mass um mass culture right where at well one television like there's parts that where i was reading this where i felt like he was like pretty much explicitly talking about television especially early on but also just this um this commercial culture where all of everything every aspect of your life is sold to you and you sort of live to create like the, to replicate this certain series of images that have been like conditioned to appeal to like irrational impulses in people you know what i mean like i feel like that's a component of this as well in terms of this kind of new subject that he's describing I, and i think that's why they turn towards culture is is in part I, I can't stress that if you reject state capitalism that you can't say the problem is capitalism enough and i know that the ussr and its satellites were trying very hard to replicate all the ends of capitalism. And so they're kind of the exception that proves the rule in a way because they're, you know, trying to accomplish these things that only capitalism had accomplished. But all the same, like, and I don't know, I, I think technology could have d developed a different way. And I think that's what makes the tech so painful is that Marcuse also believes that it could have. But I, I suppose that it, you know, just in fact did not. History decided that, in fact, it would demand all the horrible things that it could. That, that's fucked up. <laughs> like, well, yeah, I think that so many years after the publication of this book, the fact that it really does kind of describe our mass culture so much is pretty fucking scary. Yeah, it's chilling. And, it, and, it's, and it's written at a fundamentally different time when these tendencies were, you know, I don't know, the economic tendencies of, of you know, like increasing like incomes or something. I don't know. That was like a real thing for a big part of the population. And there was, you could be bought off. People now aren't even bought off. <laughs> oh, and I think what's interesting is, is that he kind of predicts some of the progresses in things like national liberation and queer liberation 
and feminism and gender liberation and civil rights that happened in the last 50 years. But I also think that he also predicts in a way the kind of just psychically disturbed and alienating lives that we will all have as well. Yeah, and, and the so incorporation sees, of those movements. Yeah, and in a way, he doesn't really, um, he doesn't predict the incorporation of those movements into this administrative monstrosity that exists. But really, what that is kind of what happened is that these movements for liberation of these oppressed, marginalized identities became part of the operational logic that the system basically absorbed everything into. It's very similar to the whole society, the spectacle argument. Yeah, like, I, I feel like that if you take that chapter on politics and the, the, the closing of politics and the chapter on culture that comes right after it, if you, like, add them together in an equation, you do get, you know, that the even the marginal, you know, the, 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 the movements of the marginal could be reincorporated through some kind of spectacular image of romantic revolutionary. I think that, you know, if he doesn't come to that conclusion, it's because he's inconsistent. If he, I think he probably, deep in his heart, suspects that, that is the case. That is such a reading. But, like, maybe he doesn't want to depress people. <laughs> like, no, 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 don't, don't not do it. You probably should, because a bunch of this shit will happen. But, yeah, it could get incorporated. Like, I don't know. That's, that's a weird reading. But you can understand where I'm coming from, right? Like, why wouldn't he say that? Well, yeah, I think totally <clears throat> he's saying good things can happen, just proletarian revolution won't be one of them. But at the same time, proletarian revolution is the only way we can solve this crisis of technological society. There's something so honest about that. He's, he's you know, correct. And it's not hope. he's not that hopeful, but he's trying to look on, the, hey, look on the bright side. <laughs> there might be some kind of challenge from the margin. Well, one thing I wanted to bring up was actually Marcuse, one of the challenges at the margins of society that he's kind of threw his lot in with was the hippies and the counterculture. So, you know, what exactly will we make of that? Did Marcuse take LSD? Those are the same question. I don't think we know. As far as the drugs are concerned, this is very close to my heart because, again, unfortunately, in the universities, uh, you know, we are very uh, much concerned with it. Uh, in this respect, I'm a terrible reactionary, as in many other respects. I think that drugs are uh, reprehensible and that the only case in which uh, they are uh, to be welcomed is in case of uh, pain, of insufferable physical pain. In all other cases, uh, they cannot possibly uh, do uh, what these people pretend uh, they do, uh, especially not in art, literature, development of consciousness. All these, if anything, are acts of human freedom. And if they are not uh, the uh, development and attainment of human freedom, uh, they will invariably accomplish the opposite of what they are supposed to be uh, to accomplish, namely some kind of... Uh, illusory happiness, illusory contentment, illusory experience, which again may very well become a vehicle of adjustment uh, rather than the opposite. But isn't the ability in a certain sense to, um, to take drugs which uh, can expand your personal individual consciousness to their greatest extent, if in fact this is what they do, or to work in art forms which um, 
which expands one, one's own feelings and emotions to the utmost. Isn't this really a kind of um, uh, liberation and freedom which is um, unparalleled in history? Well, maybe it is a liberation from things from which you shouldn't be liberated because they are precisely uh, the very essence of the present uh, state of affairs. And if you liberate yourself artificially from it, what you actually do is not develop your consciousness, but arrest your consciousness. In other words, this isn't so much a freedom to as a freedom from. Exactly. Uh, I so don't know if like him, him having like a hippie fetish is better than like his, the response of his peers in the Frankfurt School, which was Dorno and Hochheimer, just like freaking out because the hippies are like weird and stuff and calling it left fascism. Yeah, these norm core, you know, left wing fascists. Just to touch on what Rosa was saying a little bit, as much as we don't like the hippies, would we have sat out May 68 uh, kind of a Dorno That wasn't hippies. That wasn't hippies. I no, we're talking about scarves at that point, but the the yeah. <laughs> that's different. No, but like in America, the point is bead yeah. versus scarves. Like, but like, but what about like the Democratic <laughs> Convention of '68? Like that was like you know hippies in a lot of ways. <laughs> but I think in, in America, it, like it? like in America, the like the in the United States basically like we have trouble telling the hippies apart from the politicos, and there there yeah. was. A, a rational basis for that there was a rational basis for that even though like they kind of despised e each other in this way and had conflict between the two you know they were both reactions to society or you know attempts to change it in a way like one of them you know completely you know idealistic and indulgent and the other like very severe and um <laughs> well it didn't work out fellas but you know you know, it, it's it's just kind of a weird thing to think about that, like, Adorno basically got, like, trolled by his students and things like that yeah. just because of how, like, how stuck in the mind. And Hochheimer ended up supporting the Vietnam War. Yes, really. We should do yeah, I mean, I find Marcuse's takes politically to be far more admirable than those of Marcuse, uh, I mean, Horkheimer and Adorno. But at the same time, I think... His kind of optimism about the hippies comes from a blindsidedness that comes from lacking a class analysis. Because if you look at the hippies, it's really like a like a petty bourgeois movement that's trying to LARP the lumpen proletariat. And it's very backwards looking and prone to mysticism. And it's very easy to tell from this that it should be prone to these kind of reactionary tendencies in society. Yeah. But because it exists on the outside of the dominant capitalist logic, Marcuse sees it as liberatory. But the thing is, I think what he doesn't understand is that sometimes a thing can be outside capitalism and outside its dominant logic can still be a bad thing. And I think that's one of the questions we have to face today when dealing with the fact that much of the opposition and reaction to capitalism comes in a right-wing, socially conservative form in some cases. And I think that, you know, Marcuse is lacking the class analysis and just focusing on this kind of outsider versus the one-dimensional consciousness is kind of just, it's almost like, it can be kind of childishly interpreted. And, and you see this in the New Left and how so many people interpret Marcuse, like the Weather Underground. It's like right, you have exactly. the white minority of people at the fringes of society 
and then you have all the NPCs who are just one-dimensional and have no internal <laughs> dialogue. No, think about it. It's kind of like, you know, that's what the NPC meme is all about. Is it? You read that one Jacko by article, didn't you? No, no, I didn't, actually. <laughs> I, 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 honestly, I, I feel like the NPC right. meme is, like, the stupidest thing the right has come yeah, up with, stupid, like, ever. Like, <laughs> We're talking about it. It's memeing. It's one of the stupidest things out there. I hate the NPC meme, but if you think about it, it reminds me of the argument made in this book that basically people can't think too like they can't think dialectically anymore. They can't develop an oppositional negative consciousness. They can only think positively and according to the operational rationality of the dominant system. And so they only have like this simple input, output, and like dialogue in their head. They don't have like this narrative dialectical dialogue like you know the few people on the fringes of society do and everyone is just you know a, a gray-faced like drone well you know there was somebody did do a thing where they made like they took the cover of this book and they put like the npc thing like in like a, t a computer that's on one of the covers i think that the edition that lexi's talking about if you look at the cover of it um where the computer is they put like an npc face inside the, inside the monitor <laughs> that's so dead on that's you know I, that's amazing but, i mean the problem with the npc meme is that it actually doesn't make that critique like their whole thing is just like they basically claim like all liberal arguments sound the same therefore they're npcs like it's not actually about like the alienation of you know living in like the capitalist system yeah like, because i i think this npc meme does you know a good job of describing marcuse's uh, yeah i don't know like Showing you why Marcuse was onto something. People develop these false kinds of oppositions that, you know, this false sense of uh, rebellion. Like, yeah, it's it's kind of perfect for the system. It's so perfect. Like, it's kind it's, of fuck club ask you to think about it. <laughs> Man, I see in Fight Club the strongest and smartest men who've ever lived. I see all this potential, and I see squandered. God damn it, an entire generation pumping gas, waiting tables, slaves with white collars. Advertising has us chasing cars and clothes, working jobs we hate so we can buy shit we don't need. We're the middle children of history, man. No purpose or place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't. We're slowly learning that fact. We're very, very pissed off. I'm serious. Like, mind's the fact that you can kind of compare this stuff to Fight Club and the NPC meme is kind of telling that there's something about this argument that's actually kind of stupid and flimsy. That's why well, I'm. Excited. This is just a very influential argument, too. Like, it's just yeah. in the air. This is one of those books that you can read without picking it up. It's like 1984. It's like, I mean, the you know, thing something. is, like, so much of like <clears throat> the good left in the 70s. I think was inspired by turning to the working class and away from Marcuse. And so much of what became 
the mainstream Democratic Party today is probably the side of the left that leaned more towards Marcuse's side of things. Well, like the literal Rainbow Coalition. Like, that was the thing in the 80s. Yeah, Yeah. Rainbow Coalition. The the second Rainbow Coalition under Jesse Jackson. Um, do we, did anyone listen to a Rick Roderick lecture on this? Oh, yeah. I did. Yeah, I thought there was... I did as well. There was some good stuff in there. I liked the thing he said about strikes. Let's take trying to start a union. Let's say you want a union. and, And when American workers used to have them, we had steadily rising wages. We had them years and years and years. Since we haven't had many unions, we haven't had that. Maybe a connection there, I don't know. Trying to start a union always suffers this problem. You have to transcend instrumental reason to start a union because it's not rational for the first three people to join. You follow me? The first three, it's not rational. You have to convince them there's a bigger rationality than theirs at stake. Something that transcends their selfhood or they're not, or you haven't got a union. So when, if you don't do that, the total outcome for all the workers is itself irrational. Namely, they are then forced to negotiate against a power greater than themselves at a massive disadvantage, rather than to have equals negotiate these things. Again, this is a case where individual instrumental reason left to its own produces irrational results. Where he says basically, and I think anyone who's, I don't know, you know, and some of us here have tried to organize labor before and know how difficult yeah. it is to organize a strike. And he talks about a problem that, you know, is really familiar almost to anyone who's had this issue where you're just getting like three people on board who are willing to make that risk, that leap of faith. So you basically risk sacrificing everything for a wage raise. That's requiring people to make this kind of leap of faith and have this oppositional consciousness in society where Mm -hmm. they see a a contradiction between how things are and how things could be. And so people, because they're one dimensional, they can only see how things are. And so this kind of oppositional consciousness doesn't exist. And so something as simple as organizing a strike can't be done according to this kind of logic. And Rick Roderick kind of points this out. Right. He does a good job in that part of highlighting how individuated self-interests and group self-interests can be so different and for those group self-interests to still be actual self-interests and that really plays out in that union metaphor because although the first three people to sign up for a union are acting against their sort of rational self-interest it's towards the service of a reasonable project that will advance their interests at the same time it requires something beyond instrumental reason i was gonna say like i see communism as almost requiring that same kind of leap of faith and reasoning you know and and i think yeah i think obviously communism should be or marxism should be as scientific as possible but i still think that you could use a marxist analysis to come to the conclusion that communism is impossible and capitalism is the most productive possible system, and therefore the best. And so I think there is kind of this Pascal's wager type thing you know you have to make, almost a leap of faith, and it requires this kind of dialectical worldview that Marcuse basically, 
I think his argument is weird because he kind of sees this dialectical worldview as almost being natural to people at one point. Like people just face their cons like their conditions, and then the contradictions of history made them like see passive reification and fight back. But now, because of consumer culture, people aren't doing that anymore. And I think that's just wrong. And I think that he's ta like he's taking the very real fact of the working class's integration to make this kind of totalizing theory of basically the uh, the end of you know class struggle, basically not the end of history because he still thinks that good things can happen, just at the margins of society. I would think that he would consider them. This is super end notes, right? Like he would still consider these movements of the proletariat, even if they don't consider them such, and even if that understanding is even is blocked in a way. Well, here's where the confusing part comes in, is where these kind of movements of dispossessed minorities, because for example, racial oppression is experienced by all non-whites regardless of class status. So movements against these forms of oppression are more prone towards, you know, class collaboration, you know, for a very sensible reason, that they're uniting against an oppression that they all face regardless of the class. But the thing is that there's contradictions within these movements that develop because of those class differences and how people experience these oppressions and have to fight them. Yeah, and I this, think this that's, is the Marxist humanist argument. This is even like Lenin's argument for, you know, national liberation. Yeah. And for just supporting democratic movements of any oppressed group, basically. And Marx makes a similar argument, in my opinion. And so I think that, but at the same time, the left in this era had become, like, so economistic and focused on just bread and butter demands. Like, the mass CPs in Europe, if you wanted to say, like, oh, this is the big thing of leftism going on, that's what you would point to would be the Italian CP or the French CP. And they were basically just like glorified like labor parties because they had that legacy of anti-fascism. And so they could talk harder and be a little bit more militant. But in the end, they basically were labor parties. They weren't, um, you know, they weren't communist parties and program and action. And I mean, so it's The French CP easy. was like colonialist too. It was, it was really... Uh, yeah, like uh, part of the reason May 68 even happened was because all of these trots and malice were so dissatisfied with how little the CP was doing to fight the war in Vietnam that, you know, they formed their own committees to fight the war against Vietnam, and those committees ended up growing into the uh, group that ended up occupying the Sorbonne. And so anti-imperialism was a really big factor in May 68. But that's There's kind of getting off topic. But that's but that goes back to Marcuse because he sees the third world and these countries of uneven development and the fact that they still haven't undergone the process of capitalist development as basically another example of an opportunity of change that you know shows the end of history isn't here quite yet. So in a way, he's trying to keep Marxism going while admitting that the class struggle is over it's it's weird well if you think about it like the way that the way that the combined and uneven development move works that that pivot in marxist theory where instead of revolution coming from the the core and you know like descending through the periphery 
with these shockwaves of international class consciousness, or in the worst versions, some kind of red imperialism, which is shitty. But let's go with the nice one. So instead, we're pivoting to actually the marginal countries, the ones that aren't completely integrated into capitalism, are the ones that are going to spark the rev. And that's going to trigger the international class solidarity. Or in the third worldist version, they, they will encircle the global cities. But you know, we're going to go with a nice one, right? If you abstract that logic of, of that pivot, that's what Marcuse is doing throughout on an on a inter-society level. It's a combined and uneven development theory within the And society. that he says that change comes from the periphery rather than the core. Exactly. So it's, it's that, kind that of the like process a process through which a periphery is created from the core. Yeah, it's the Frankfurt a, School like elaboration of that like essential Leninist pivot. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. But I think that Marcuse, you know, is the only one in the Frankfurt School that does this because the other Frankfurt School people seem to react to like the third world liberation struggles and by comparing them to fascism. <laughs> you know, that's that's what I kind of got from a lot of those people, like that they saw like third world nationalism as a, basically the same thing as fascism and oh, yeah. one, some that, other that form of like repression. Chubby. Yeah, exactly. That's where a lot of the platypus and shitty left com arguments like the really bad side of like Eurocentric Marxism comes from. So you're talking about red colonialism, like this vision that some Marxists had in the uh, second and third international, some of the more chauvinist ones, that basically there would be a revolution in Europe and then it would integrate all of its colonies into the communist motherland. And uh, I think that this is just like a you know chauvinistic idea because Engels points out that if, if revolution were to happen in England, for example, it wouldn't um, try to make India communist. The first thing it would do would remove all forces from India because, of, you know, the quote Engels, communism can't be brought in on colonial bayonets. And so that kind of anti-imperialist vision is still there in Marx and Engels, actually. Like, they're, they see... For example, and also with the example of Ireland and England, because they're using England as an example, they think that basically the the political struggle against chauvinism against Ireland is part of the struggle to unify the English working class to make revolution. I guess, I don't know, that, that kind of cap off his rant, I guess that kind of shows, Marcuse shows what happens when you kind of look at the struggles of these minority groups and marginalized groups for democratic rights but remove it from the broader context of class struggle, if that makes sense. And you get something kind of like a diffuse uh, coalition rather than a kind of unified movement. That's it for this week. And what a week it's been. I wish we had, you know, wish we had some good news for you. And even though Marcuse does have some extremely qualified optimism in his writing, mixed with a healthy and quite sensible dose of pessimism, we definitely erred more on the pessimistic side in our reading. And we even recorded this before, you know, the election results, which... You know, even though I'm convinced that 
this system is fucked generally, and I always have hated the Democrats. Results weren't encouraging. There wasn't a lot. There wasn't a lot to be uh, non-demoralized about. Moralized? Is moralized a word? I don't know. This doesn't seem to be the era of good news. You know? It just seems to get worse and worse. But... You know, we could try and sit here and look for the silver lining or look for the bit and go, Oh, but see, there's a, something that's going to move to keep it and make it better. Or fix it and make it better. But, uh, you know, I don't see a lot of that. And we're in a similar position to Marcuse, you know. The classical early 20th century workers' movement was defeated and incorporated. I guess at the time it was incorporated, now it's defeated. You know, the capitalists brought it closer in order to smother it. And we're just kind of sitting here wondering, you know, what comes next? We have this commitment to the Enlightenment and the communist consequences or the fact that communism is the next stage of human progress. We have this commitment to the the principles of freedom and equality and all that shit. But we're not exactly sure how that's going to take it makes its expression felt socially. And uh yeah, this isn't really I guess this isn't really the podcast that has a lot of answers for you. But there's enough infantilization going on. There's enough fake answers and I think that if we're genuine in our inquiry and puzzling this out maybe you can puzzle this out with us and you know try and think this problem through and uh you know you can do it with us on discord too so uh subscribe to the patreon that's a buck a month that's nothing that's nothing. What's money anyway? What's it? We're all consigned to a watery oblivion. You know, are you going to look back and think, man, if only I'd saved that one, five, or ten dollars, I'd be in a better position now? No. No. You'll be, you'll be outside the gated communities and secure biodomes that the rich live in, struggling with the rest of us. But... If you invest that now in this in this podcast, we can start to build the communist movement right here. We can propagandize. We can ask the tough questions. We can call out the bullshit and gradually build a survival community that will have our meetup spot. We'll have our cache of weapons. We'll have our uh, survival seeds and cans. You know, we'll have a guy who knows how to farm. We'll have a guy who knows how to fix machines, and we'll fucking, we'll gang up and we'll get through this shit. And it starts here, with your dollar donation to Patreon. We're also changing our tiers, though. It's going to get a little more expensive to make us read shit. Not that your, not that your picks haven't been great. They have. We've been having a blast doing them. But there's a little thing called supply and demand. 
So demand goes up, price goes up. That's how resources are managed under a monetary system. And we're under a monetary system. Alright? It sucks. But all of our content will be nominally free. The only thing you'll ever pay for is to hear some behind the scenes shit and hop in on that Discord. Which I don't even know if we should make people pay for that, but whatever. Okay, so that's enough of that. Um you know how to get a hold of us. Email swampsidechance at gmail.com. You can send us PayPal money there, too. Um, like our shit. Tell your friends. You know, form form cells in your hometown with like-minded people. And make sure you know them well so they're not in the FBI or the CIA or any shit like that. And, uh, you know, just talk to people about shit, you know. We'll figure this out. So uh, hang in there and uh, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>